Welcome to the Ladies of Horror Fiction Presents Stories of Horror. My name is Tony from The Misadventures of a Reader. This week we're going to be exploring the story Luella Miller by Mary E. Wilkins Freeman. However, before we launch into the story, let's talk a little about the very interesting life of Mary E. Wilkins Freeman. Mary Ella Wilkins was born to Warren Edward Wilkins and Eleanor Lothrop on October 31, 1852 in Randolph, Massachusetts. She had one sibling, Anna Wilkins. Due to financial hardship, the family had to move to Battleboro, Vermont in 1867 when Mary was 15. After the family's move to Battleboro, Warren opened a dry goods store, but by 1873, the store had failed to thrive. Due to the financial hardship, the Wilkinsons moved into the home of Reverend Thomas Taylor in order for Eleanor to take a position as a housekeeper. When the family had been there for three years, Mary's sister took ill and passed away. Mary never fit into the mold set for women in the 1880s. She raged against the example her mother had set for her. She didn't think that women should be passive and only perform household duties. This rebellious streak caused a lot of friction between herself and her mother. Many times, Mary would be punished for reading instead of performing her household chores. This probably frustrated Mary's mother quite a bit because Anna was the exact opposite of Mary. Mary had been permitted to finish high school and even attend one year of college at Holyoke Female Seminary School from 1870 to 1871. She had to return home due to an illness. Mary did finish her college education at Glenwood Seminary in West Battleboro. Once finished with her education, Mary wanted to help the family financially. She started to submit her stories for publication. The first of Mary's short stories to be published was a children's story named The Beggar King. By 1883, both Mary's mother and father had passed away, leaving her with no living relatives. She moved back to her hometown where she moved to the Wells family farm. It was during this time that Mary, being excused from any household duties to focus on her writing, became a prolific writer. She was publishing on a regular basis. Mary lived on the farm for 20 years. She was 49 when she met her husband, Dr. Charles M. Freeman. After her marriage, she moved to her husband's home in Meacham, New Jersey. Initially, her marriage was happy, but it quickly began to fall apart. Charles wasn't the man he presented to Mary when they met. He was an alcoholic philanderer who pushed Mary to write to support his own vices. Between their marriage in 1902 and their legal separation in 1922, Mary had Charles committed a number of times for mental instability and alcoholism. During her long and prolific career, Mary published 15 volumes of short stories, 50 short stories not included in a collection, 14 novels, 3 volumes of poetry, 3 plays, and 8 children's books, and 8 prose essays. Mary E. Wilkins Freeman passed away March 13, 1930 in Meacham, New Jersey, of a heart attack. As an aside, Mary wanted to honor her mother, Eleanor, after her death. She legally changed her middle name from Ella to Eleanor. Now that we know a bit about Mary's life, let's get started with her story, Luella Miller. Luella Miller. Close to the village street stood the one-story house in which Luella Miller who had an evil name in the village, had dwelt. She had been dead for years. 
Yet there were those in the village who, in spite of the clearer light which comes on from a vantage point from a long distant danger, half believed in the tale which they heard from their childhood. In their hearts, although they scarcely would have owned it, was a survival of the wild horror and frenzied fear of their ancestors who had dwelt in the same age with Luella Miller. Young people even would stare with a shudder at the old house as they passed, and children never played around it as their wont around an untented building. Not a window in the old Miller house was broken. The panes reflected the morning sunlight in patches of emerald and blue, and the latch of the sagging front door was never lifted, although no bolt secured it. Since Luella Miller had been carried out of it, the house had had no tenant except one friendless old soul who had no choice between that and the far-off shelter of the open sky. This old woman, who had survived her kindred and friends, lived in the house one week. Then one morning, no smoke came out of the chimney, and a body of neighbors, a score strong, entered and found her dead in her bed. There were dark whispers as to the cause of her death. And there were those who testified to an expression of fear so exalted that it showed forth the state of the departing soul upon the dead face. The old woman had been hale and hearty when she entered the house, and in seven days she was dead. It seemed she had fallen a victim to some uncanny power. The minister talked in the pulpit with covert severity against the sin of superstition. Still the belief prevailed. Not a soul in the village would have chosen the almshouse rather than that dwelling. No vagrant, if he heard the tale, would seek shelter beneath that old roof, unhallowed by nearly half a century of superstitious fear. There was only one person in the village who had actually known Luella Miller. That person was a woman well over 80, but a marvel of vitality and unextinct youth. Straight as an arrow with the spring of one recently let loose from the bow of life, she moved about the streets and she always went to church, rain or shine. She had never married and had lived alone for years in a house across the road from Luella Miller's. This woman had none of the garrulousness of age, but never in all her life had she ever held her tongue for any will save her own, and she never spared the truth when she essayed to present it. She it was who bore testimony to the life, evil, though possibly wittingly, or designedly so, of Luella Miller, and to her personal appearance. When this old woman spoke, and she had the gift of description, although her thoughts were clothed in the rude vernacular of her native village, one could seem to see Luella Miller as she had really looked. According to this woman, Lydia Anderson by name, Luella Miller had been a beauty of a type rather unusual in New England. She had been a slight pliant sort of creature, as ready with a strong, yielding to fate, and as unbreakable as a willow. She had glimmering lengths of straight fair hair, which she wore softly looped round a long, lovely face. She had blue eyes full of soft pleading, little slender clinging hands, and a wonderful grace of motion and attitude. Luella Miller used to sit in a way nobody else could if they sat up and studied a week of Sundays, said Lil. Lydia Anderson, and it was a sight to see her walk. If one of them willows over there on the edge of that brook could start up and get its roots free from the ground and move off, it would go just the way Luella Miller used to. She had a green shot silk she used to wear too, 
and a hat with green ribbon streamers, and a lace veil blowing across her face and out sideways, and a green ribbon flying from her waist. That was what she came out bride in when she married Erastus Miller. Her name before she was married was Hill. There was always a sight of L's in her name, married or single. Erastus Miller was good looking too, better looking than Luella. Sometimes I used to think that Luella wasn't so handsome after all. Eurustus just worshipped her. I used to know him pretty well. He lived next door to me, and we went to school together. Folks used to say he was waiting on me, but he wasn't. I never thought he was except once or twice when he said things that some girls might have suspected meant something. That was before Luella came here to teach the district school. It was funny how she came to get it, for folks said she hadn't any education, and that one of the big girls, Lottie Henderson, used to do all the teaching for her, while she sat back and did embroidery work on a cambric pocket handkerchief. Lottie Henderson was a real smart girl, a splendid scholar, and she just set her eyes by Luella, as well as the girls did. Lottie would have made a real smart woman, but she died when Luella had been here about a year, just faded away and died. Nobody knew what elder. She dragged herself to that schoolhouse and helped Luella teach till the very last minute. The committee all knew how Luella didn't do much of the work herself, but they winked at it. It wasn't long after Lottie died that Eurystice married her. I always thought he hurried to it uh, because she wasn't fit to teach. One of the big boys used to help her after Lottie died, but he hadn't much government and the school didn't do very well. And Luella might have had to give it up, for the committee couldn't have shut their eyes to things much longer. The boy that helped her was a real honest, innocent sort of fellow, and he was a good scholar, too. Folks said he overstudied, and that was the reason he was took crazy the year after Luella married, but I don't know. And I don't know what made Eurestus Miller go into consumption of the blood the year after he was married. Consumption wasn't in his family. He just grew weaker and weaker and went almost bent double when he tried to wait on Luella, and he spoke feeble like an old man. He worked terrible hard till the last trying to save up a little to leave Luella. I seen him out in the worst storms on a wood sled. He used to cut and sell wood, and he was haunched on top, looking more dead than alive. Once I couldn't stand it. I went over and helped him pitch some wood in the cart. I was always strong in my arms. I wouldn't stop for all he told me to, and I guess he was glad enough for the help. That was only a week before he died. He fell on the kitchen floor when he was getting breakfast. He always got the breakfast and let Luella lay abed. He did a little of the sweeping, the washing, the ironing, and most of the cooking. He couldn't bear to have Luella lift a finger, and she let him do it for her. She lived like a queen for all the work she did. She didn't even do her sewing. She said it made her shoulder ache to sew, and poor Eurystice's sister, Lily, used to do all her sewing. She wasn't able to either. She was never strong in her back, but she did it beautifully. She had to, to suit Luella. She was so dreadful particular. I never saw anything like that faggotin' and hemstetchin' that Lily Miller did for Luella. She made all Luella's wedding outfit and that green silk dress after Maria Babbitt cut it. Maria, she cut it for nothing, and she did a lot more cutting and fitting for nothing for Luella, too. Lily Miller went to live with Luella after Eurystice died. She gave up her home, though she was real attached to it, and wasn't a mite afraid to stay alone. She rented it, and she went to live with Luella right away after the funeral. Then this old woman, Lydia Anderson, who remembered Luella Miller, would go on to relate the story of Lily Miller. It seemed that on the removal of Lily Miller to the house of her dead brother to live with his widow, the village people first began to talk. 
This Lily Miller had been hardly past her first youth, and a most robust and blooming woman, rosy-cheeked, with curls of strong black hair overshadowing round, candid temples and bright, dark eyes. It was not six months after she had taken up her residency with her sister-in-law that her rosy color faded and her pretty curves became wan hollows. White shadows began to show in the black rings of her hair and the light died out of her eyes. Her features sharpened and there were pathetic lines at her mouth which yet wore always an expression of utter sweetness and even happiness. She was devoted to her sister. There was no doubt that she loved her with her whole heart and was perfectly content in her service. It was her sole anxiety lest she should die and leave her alone. The way Lily Miller used to talk about Luella was enough to make you mad and enough to make you cry, said Lydia Anderson. I've been in there sometimes toward the last when she was too feeble to cook and carried her some blanc menage or custard something. I thought she might relish and she thanked me and when I asked her how she was, she said, she felt better than she did yesterday and asked me if I didn't think she looked better. Dreadful pitiful. And say poor Luella had an awful time taking care of her and doing the work. She wasn't strong enough to do anything when all the time Luella wasn't lifting her finger and poor Lily didn't get any care except what the neighbors gave her. And Luella eat up everything that was carried in for Lily. I had it straight that she did. Luella used to just sit and cry and do nothing. She did real act fond of Lily, and she pined away considerably, too. There was those that thought she'd go into decline herself, but after Lily died, her Aunt Abby Mixter came, and then Luella picked up and grew as fat and rosy as ever. But poor Aunt Abby began to droop just the way Lily had, and I guess someone wrote to her married daughter, Mrs. Sam Abbott, who lived in Bar, for she wrote her mother that she must leave right away and come make her a visit. But Aunt Abby wouldn't go. I can see her now. She was a real good-looking woman, tall and large, with a big square face and a high forehead that looked of itself kind of benevolent and good. She just tended out on Luella as if she had been a baby, and when her married daughter sent for her, she wouldn't stir one inch. She always thought a lot of her daughter, too. But she said Luella needed her, and her married daughter didn't. Her daughter kept writing and writing, but it didn't do any good. Finally, she came, and when she saw how bad her mother looked, she broke down and cried, and all but went on her knees to have her come away. She spoke her mind out to Luella, too. She told her that she'd killed her husband and everybody that had anything to do with her, and she'd thank her to leave her mother alone. Luella went into hysterics, and Aunt Abby was so frightened that she called me after her daughter went. Mrs. Sam Abbott, she went away fairly crying out loud in the buggy. The neighbors heard her, and, well, she might, for she never saw her mother again alive. I went in that night when Aunt Abby called for me, standing in the door with her little green check shawl over her head. I can see her now. Do you come over here, Miss Anderson, she sung out, kind of gasping for breath. I didn't stop for nothing. I put over as fast as I could, and when I got there, there was Luella laughing and crying all together, and Aunt Abby trying to hush her. And all the time, she herself was white as a sheet, shaking so she could hardly stand. For the land's sakes, Miss Mixter, Says I, you look worse than she does. You ain't fit to be up out of your bed. Oh, there ain't anything wrong with me, says she. Then she went on talking to, to Luella. There, there, don't, don't, poor little lamb, said she. Aunt Abby's here. She ain't gonna go away and leave you. Don't, poor little lamb. To leave her with me, Miss Mixter. 
"'And you get back to bed,' says I, "'for Aunt Abby had been laying down considerable lately, "'though somehow she contrived to do the work. "'I am well enough,' she says she. "'Don't you think she had better have the doctor, Miss Anderson?' "'The doctor,' says I. "'I think you better have the doctor. "'I think you need him much worse than some folks I can mention.' "'And I looked right straight at Luella Miller, "'laughing and crying and going on "'if she was the center of all creation.' All the time, she was acting so, seemed as if she was too sick to sense anything, but she was keeping a sharp look at us to how we took it out of the corner of one eye. I see her. You could never cheat me about Luella Miller. Finally, I got real mad, and I run home, and I got a bottle of Larian I had, and I poured some boiling hot water on a handful of catnip, and I mixed up that catnip tea with almost half a wine glass of Larian, and I went over with it to Luella's. I marched right up to Luella, a holding out of that cup, all smoking. Now, says I, Luella, you swallow this. What is that? Oh, what is it? She sort of screeches out, and then she goes off a laughing enough to kill. Poor little lamb. Poor lamb, says Aunt Abby, standing over here all kind of tottery, trying to bathe her head with camphor. You swallow this right down, says I. I don't waste any ceremony. I just took a hold of Luella Miller's chin, tipped her head back, and I caught her mouth open with a laughing, and I clapped that cup to her lips, and I fairly hollered at her, swallow, 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 and she gulped it right down. She had to, and I guess it did her good. Anyhow, she stopped crying and laughing and let me put her to bed, and she went to sleep like a baby inside a half an hour. That was more than it poor Aunt Abby did. She lay awake all that night. And I stayed with her, though she tried not to have me. Said she wasn't sick. Enough for watchers. But I stayed, and I made some good cornmeal gruel, and I fed her a teaspoon every once in a while. All night long. And it seemed to me if she was just dying from being all wore out. In the morning, as soon as it was light, I run over to the Bisbees and sent Johnny Bisbee for the doctor. And I told him to tell the doctor to hurry, and he came pretty quick. Poor Aunt Abby didn't seem to know much of anything when he got there. You couldn't hardly tell she breathed, she was so used up. When the doctor had gone, Luella came into the room looking like a baby in her ruffled nightgown. I could see her now. Her eyes was blue, and her face was all pink and white like a blossom. And she looked at Aunt Abby in bed, sort of innocent and surprised. Why, says she, Aunt Abby ain't got up yet? No, she ain't, says I, pretty short. I thought I didn't smell the coffee, says Luella. Coffee, says I. I thought if you had coffee this morning, you'd make it yourself. I have never made the coffee in all of my life, says she, dreadful astonished. Eurystice always made the coffee as long as he lived, and then Lily made it, and then Aunt Abby made it. I don't believe I can make the coffee, Miss Anderson. You can make it or go without it just as you please, says I. Ain't Aunt Abby going to get up, says she. I guess she won't get up, says I, sick as she is. I was getting madder and madder. There was something about that little pink and white thing standing there talking about coffee when she had killed so many better folks than she was and had just killed another. That made me feel most as if I wished somebody would up and kill her before she had a chance to do any more harm. Is Aunt Abby sick, says Luella, as if she was sort of aggrieved and injured. Yes, says I, she's sick and she's going to die and then you'll be left alone and you'll have to do for yourself and wait on yourself or do without things. I don't know, but I was sort of hard, but it, but it was the truth. And if I was any harder than Luella Miller had been, I'll give up. I ain't never been sorry that I said it. Well, Luella, she went up and had hysterics again at that, and I just let her have them. 
All I did was to bundle her into the room on the other side of the entry where Aunt Abby couldn't hear if she went past it. I don't know, but she was, and set her hard down in a chair, and told her not to come back into the other room, and she minded. She had her hysterics in there till she got tired. When she found out that nobody was coming to coddle her and do for her, she stopped. At least I suppose she did. I had all I could do with poor Aunt Abby trying to keep the breath of life in her. The doctor told me that she was dreadful low and gave me some very strong medicine to give to her in drops real often. And told me real particular about the nourishment. Well, I did as he told me real faithful till she wasn't able to swallow her any longer. Then I had her daughter sent for and I realized that she wouldn't last any time at all. I hadn't realized it before, though I spoke to Luella the way I did. The doctor, he came, and Mrs. Sam Abbott, but when she got there, it was too late, and her mother was dead. Aunt Abby's daughter gave one look at her mother lying there, and she turned sort of sharp and sudden and looked at me. Where is she? Says she, and I knew she meant Luella. She's out in the kitchen, says I. She's too nervous to see folks die. She's afraid it'll make her sick. The doctor, he speaks up then. He was a young man. Old Dr. Parker had died the year before, but this was a young fellow just out of college. Mrs. Miller's not strong, says he, kind of severe. And she's quite right in not agitating herself. You are another young man. She's got her pretty claw on you, thinks I. But I didn't say anything to him. I just said over to Miss Sam Abbott that Luella was in the kitchen. And Miss Sam Abbott, she went in there, and I went too, and I never heard anything like the way she talked to Luella Miller. I felt pretty hard to Luella myself, but this was more than I ever had even dared to say. Luella, she was just too scared to go into hysterics. She just flopped. She seemed to just shrink away to nothing on, in that kitchen chair. And Miss Sam Abbott standing over her talking and telling her the truth. I guess the truth was too much for her. And no mistake. Because Luella presently actually did faint away. And there wasn't any sham about it. The way I always suspected there was about them hysterics. She fainted dead away. And we had to lie her out flat on the floor. And the doctor, he come running out. And he said something about a weak heart. Dreadful fears to Miss Sam Abbott. But she wasn't mite scared. She faced him just as wide as even Luella was laying there, looking like death, and the doctor feeling of her pulse. And this is where we're going to end the story today. What do you guys think? What is she? I have no idea. Um, interesting story, though. And for some reason, Lydia Anderson uh, came out sounding from the South. This was actually written in New England. So, yeah, I'm sorry about that. So part two of Luella Miller will be available to listen to on June 25th. So make sure you are following the LOHF to find out what happens in the second part of the story. What actually kills her? Like, seriously. So we know she's dead, right? Because of the beginning of the story. But what actually kills her in the end? And if you'd like to reach out to the LOHF podcast, our email is lohfpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear about new releases, news in the community, and suggestions for the podcast. You can find out more about the members of the Ladies of Horror Fiction via our website at ladiesofhorrorfiction.com. Just a reminder, next month we are going to be showcasing some of the work of ladies that are writing horror fiction um, now. So if you haven't gotten your story in for Creature Feature, please make sure that you do so. Uh, email it over to me at lohfpod or check out the submissions page on our website to find out how you submit. 
The music for this episode is always by the fabulous Nicholas Gasparini at thedarkpiano.com. Uh, if you want to listen to some dark ambient music, check it out. So that's all for this week's folks. And um, yeah, if anybody knows what an 1800s New England accent sounds like, please send it to me because I have no idea. But have a great week and I will talk to you guys next week.